Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hey, what's up? I'm Zane. Welcome back to my space right here for conversations that's really conveniently called the Zane Lowe interview series. So you know there's no mistaking who I am and why you're here. So thanks for joining us. A good one today. There are really important conversations being had right now. There are simultaneous movements rooting out the old malignant attitudes and beliefs of the past that have held the world back and the fight continues and you can see progress being made. But it's rare that you get a chance to talk to somebody who has been at the forefront of not just one fight, but multiple. Billy Porter is a remarkable human being. His journey is something that will one day show up in book form. And he announces that in this conversation right here. But before we get to read about it, he gives us a preview right here in this conversation. Uh, No holds barred, incredibly honest, transparent, and at times emotional reflection on the challenges that he has faced, not just as an artist, as a performer, but also as a human being to establish himself, his voice, and what he believes in at the cost of time, emotional stability, and security to get to a point now in his career where he can truly be Billy Porter, look at himself in the mirror and say, I did it my way, and now my success really means something. If you want to know how we got there and you want to be inspired in the process, then dedicate yourself to this conversation right here. Myself and Billy Porter, the latest in my interview series. Billy Porter, it's not the first time that we have connected and spoken. I will never forget the first meeting we ever had. It was one of the most singularly inspiring meetings. I thought that I had landed on something so precious and unique, and then the next day the rest of the world caught up and you went fucking ape shit. <laughs> <laughs> The rest of the world caught up 30 years in the making. It's true. It's true. But what an amazing journey. And how can you begrudge when it lands, when the process that you've been able to go through in order to get there has been, from what I can tell, such an incredible journey of learning and self-discovery as well. It all happens at the right time, doesn't it? It all does. It all does. You know, if we can just find the space to be where we are, and know that everywhere we are is exactly where we're supposed to be, you know, that's really practicing presence. It's really practicing that. It actually really works. Yeah, it does. But it t- <laughs> but you talked about practicing. It takes real practice. It is not something you master overnight. It's a lifetime of work. Yeah, it's, you know, every single day I wake up and I say to myself, today is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Can you imagine how you would have translated this kind of success as a young as a young person? Well, you know, there were many starts, you know, false starts or some kind of success and you know, I wasn't ready. You know, the calling on my life is bigger than me. I understand that now. In my youth, I just wanted to be a star. You know, that was all that you understood. There was no other version of it. Like it was the 70s and 80s and early 90s. Like it was like there was no social media. There was no like you had you actually had space and privacy to really explore narcissism. Right. Right. Not that I ever really was that, but I do feel like, you know, when I started out, there was a naivete to what and why. You know, I was watching Oprah about 20 some plus years ago and she had on Maya Angelou and Yon um, Levan Sant and they were talking about intention and service. You know, and they said, when your intention is service, when you switch your intention of your life to service, everything else will work itself out. And I thought to myself, how can I be of service in an industry and a world that is inherently narcissistic? Like, what does that look like for me? Yeah. Really, seriously. And um, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was like all the th- the very thing that everybody is telling you is your liability, which at the time it was, which is my queerness, which is my gayness, you know, that leaning into that is the service of my life. That's what I know to be true. And I am living and reaping the benefits of having chosen service all those decades ago. Yeah, you know, a a really healthy sense of self-awareness in order to create a greater awareness. Yes. You know, Yes. the idea of sharing your true identity in order to inspire others to discover theirs, that is... 
that's something powerful to that. And I think you've seen such change. There's a lot more to achieve across multiple parts of the world that need to root out this continued malignancy in order to create, you know, a much brighter future across the board so that these challenges are, are, the, are the micro and the macro is the goodness. But I feel right. like this summer is another very, very important transition in that direction. And a lot of these yeah. conversations are actually coming together into one loud voice. There's a lot of collaboration amongst amongst communities and the culture from Black Lives Matter through to the LGBTQ community, which we saw here in Los Angeles, March together. And that must be really amazing for you to see, having spent your life dedicating to being in service, to see it start to resonate. Yes. And to be a Black man first and to have grown up in a world where racism and white supremacy reign supreme. So I'm living with that every time I walk out my door. And then to turn to my own people, my own Black people, and be rejected by a vast swath of homophobia that exists inside of the Black community. There was no place for me to go. <laughs> for a very long time, there was no, I felt unprotected anywhere I went, you know, and to see, first of all, the change in general in the world, you know, there is change. Things are different. We have a long way to go, but we must acknowledge the change. We must acknowledge that marriage equality is the law of the land. <laughs> you know, we must acknowledge those kinds of changes. We must acknowledge that there is difference. There is a difference. We have a long way to go. And I think that is what the world is sort of waking up to. You know, Frederick Douglass says, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And none of us are free till we're all free. So we can live inside of this bullshit, whatever we think we're doing, <laughs> you know, but like, none of us are free till we're all free. So we may as well get to understanding each other, loving each other in spite of our differences, because of our differences, through our differences, loving our differences, so that love can, like you said, become the macro. You said something powerful there before, which really was very moving, which was you didn't feel protected because no matter what direction you took, you felt judged at best. And worse. At least. At least, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. And I wonder, in those moments, who were your friends? Who did you have to turn to, to, to give you strength? Well, I have to say, I was lucky. I was blessed because the theater found me. You know, I was in the theater. I found theater in the sixth grade, and it was hanging out with that group of people immersing myself in that world that showed me something different, taught me how to dream beyond my circumstance. You know, sometimes the dreams get stuck because you, don't, you can only dream what you can see. Yeah. You know, I know even for myself as recently as Pose, as recently as, you know, Ryan Murphy sort of, and, and, and Stephen Canals and, and the crew from Pose creating the role of Pray Tell for me. I never dreamed that my success would look like this. I never dreamed it because all of my dreams were based on and springboarded off of stuff that I had already seen. So I was just trying to be masculine enough so I could eat. That's what I was trying to do because that's what worked. That's who were getting the jobs. The people who were telling me that my queerness was my liability were not wrong for a very long time. You think they were trying to protect you? They were. Now I can look back when I go back to my training at Carnegie Mellon and how difficult it was for us gay boys. You know, but I was also black. And you look at the market in 1986 when I went into uh, 87 fall of 87, when I went into college, there were three black archetypes. You know, there was the James Earl Jones patriarch, there was the Denzel Washington sex symbol, and there was the Eddie Murphy genius clown, period. That was it. And all of them were straight, some of them violently so. 
So they were just trying to prepare me for what the market bore. It was like there was nothing that looked like me until me. (laughs) And to live inside of a space where you're the first, to live inside of the space where you're a trailblazer, to live inside of those spaces. Well, hindsight and history tells us that that is a privilege, but it's actually first through the wall, bloodied and bruised. It is a challenge and it is a... Right. And it's not lost on me that I am a part of the generation of change, part of the generation that kicked the door down, and I am now able to walk through those doors I kicked down able to walk down those trails that I was a part of blazing. That doesn't always happen. No. As a matter of fact, it's very rare that that happens. It takes a lot more, a lot more time. Yeah. So it's not lost on me that I have lived both sides of that narrative. So with that in mind, having lived on both sides of that narrative and come through the other side to be able to see the kind of change that you were instrumental in creating to benefit from that in an authentic and honest way, and not have to compromise anywhere near as much as you used to. I wonder what the word forgiveness means to you because you're going to be dealing with institutions and walking down corridors that rejected you year after year after year, and they may applaud and welcome you now, but I wonder how you, how you make peace with that. You're going to make me cry. Forgiveness is for the forgiver. Forgiveness is for me. It's not for them. I forgive so that I can be at peace. That's why you do it. That's how you do it. You know, once again, I learned that from Oprah. It's for me. (laughs) Of course, I'm going to forgive you. Of course, I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to walk into these spaces and these places that rejected me in the past, that dismissed me in the past, that silenced me in the past. And now they have to have me. Because there's a demand for me. Well, can I actually just, can I amend that a little bit? Just being like a a, um, a fan from a distance and just breathe a little bit of positivity into that statement, which is a powerful one. Yes. They want to have you now. They had to have you before. Now they want to have you. Yes. Because speaking to the world changing, it's changed. You know, I go back to Carnegie Mellon and now there are gay students who have a, like now they, I'm the archetype. I got added. I'm added to the mainstream archetype now. So now there is a space to teach energies like me who come into the space. There's a place for them that the teachers and the instructors and the people who just want to help yeah. ultimately most of the time can go, oh, well, there's Billy. <laughs> like, it's amazing. But in, in amongst the amazing experiences that you have where you recognize things fundamentally change before your eyes and recognizing the, the, your place in that, walking away with primetime Emmy Awards and breaking boundaries, you know, being on the cover of Essence magazine, breaking boundaries, all of these successes that you can uniquely say that you have been the first through the door to achieve. Do you also sometimes feel, even just deep down in your subconscious, a melancholy that It's taken this long to get there and in amongst your own personal achievements that you know there's still a long way to go for others to be able to follow in your footsteps. Yeah, it would be disingenuous to say that I don't have a melancholy ever because I do, but or and I choose joy. I choose to be in the moment that I'm in and try to use whatever energy I have to continue to move forward. How can I, now that I'm in this space that I'm in, continue to move the conversation forward? That is the calling. That is the ministry. That's the reason why I'm the one. It's a really interesting space. One of my favorite quotes and one of the things that sort of was very arresting for me in a space when I needed to hear it was Marianne Williamson. And she says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? This is the part that got me and changed me for good. Actually, who are you not to be? 
You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And it's not just in some, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. That quote changed me for good. How old were you when you read that quote? That was probably, that was over 20 years ago. Uh, the, the quote was from 1992. So I heard it then or shortly thereafter. You know, and it resonated with me because being a person from who grew up in the church, you know, the language that I use for my spiritual connection is God. That's what I use. Do I believe in God? Do I believe in heaven and hell? Do I believe? I don't know. You know, like religion and spirituality are two different things for me. Right. So you have a spiritual connection. What you don't necessarily connect to in the physical presence or the imagery or the community or the environment within which you rejoice, you're able to identify the desire to connect to something spiritually greater than yourself. Yes. Yes. And that is what motivates me. And, you know, I always say religion is man-made. Spirituality is divine. So this was that moment where I started moving away from man-made, organized religion and into my own spiritual space. What does that look like for me? And that quote was one of the things that kind of just cracked open a different language for me, a different way of existing in the world and breathing in the world, um, allowing myself to understand and own all of the things that I am. You know, I grew up with, oh, you can't be, you know, too boastful. You can't be prideful because God will take your gifts away. So like where you are a leader, where you're a spiritual leader, you have to understand that that's what you are. So you can show up properly. It's not hubris. It's not. It's the understanding. It's not playing small so other people feel comfortable around you. It's not that. It's actually living in the fullness of all that you are. Maintaining that sense of self-worth with the quote in place, there for you to read and draw upon as inspiration as and when you need it, and a much more clear identity as to what your spirituality is speaking and saying to you without being told what to think are two very important mm -hmm. tools in order to keep one's sense of self-worth intact. But yes, we cannot gloss over the decades that you've spent hearing the word no <laughs> and much, much worse and how bad it got and how bad it got for you trying to just let your inner light shine but being treated certainly within the industry as somebody who's not welcome and don't even bother showing up because... There's too many boxes that we're not willing to check at this point in the 80s and the 90s and mm -hmm. so forth. And I wonder how, mm -hmm. how bad it, it got like, and how you dealt with those challenges at their most significant, at the, the lowest points of your journey. I suffered great depression, great anxiety. In 2000, my anxiety was so bad, I lost my voice to acid reflux for three years. I understood inside of it you know, like my record deal back in the 90s when I was trying to be an R&B artist. And, you know, I was simply dismissed. Before I even began, I was dismissed. You know, when I look back at that trauma, I, I know so many people that didn't make it to the other side of that. Some gay, some not. Whatever it was, whatever it is, however we define our worth, right? With each test, I was laying more and more foundation. Solid, concrete. You know, we used to sing a song in church, my hope is built 
on nothing less but Jesus' love and righteousness. Nothing born on sinking sand can survive. I, in this space in my life, am standing on solid ground, my own, the ground that I built with all of the challenges because of those challenges. That was the concrete. You know, that was the mixture that I mixed up. And don't get me wrong, it was not easy. It was not easy at all. There were so many nights where I cried myself to sleep. There were so many days when I couldn't get up out of bed in the morning. So many, years and years and years of it. You know, but I always knew that at the end of the day, if I could find a way to just continue to show up, Just show up. And, you know, I attribute that to my mom. My mom is disabled and she has a disability that is medical malpractice and it's been degenerative for her whole life. And I've watched her and I've watched her mobility slowly deteriorate and leave her for my entire life. She now lives at the Actors Fund Nursing Home in Inglewood, New Jersey, because she has no mobility and can't do anything for herself, right? She has to depend on somebody else to do everything for her. When we checked her in four years ago, the fight that we had with that staff was that they were not getting her out of bed early enough in the morning. Do not leave me in this bed past 8 a.m. I am not dead yet. I get that from my mom. You know, when you watch someone who doesn't have the things that I, I have every, I have all the activities of my limbs. I breathe good. I can speak well. You know, like I have everything to just simply show up for my life. That's all I have to do is show up every day. (laughs) When my mother can do it, this woman whose quality of life was never, when I look at it, I go, I don't know if I would make it. I don't know if I could do that like she did, like she has, the example that she has set for her children and the world at large. Like, it's astonishing to me. And I always think about my mother. I'm always like, look, if she could show up, I could at least get out of bed. I can at least get out of bed and put one foot in front of the other. That's the least I can do. As you become older, your relationship with those around you who nurtured you and brought you to life and and guided you and gave you the line between right and wrong changes. And you get into this really, if you're lucky, quite a sweet spot where child to parent becomes child is parent. And then Mm -hmm. there's this really sweet spot where there is no category anymore. It's just two people who know each other so well, so intrinsically. The baggage falls away just for a brief minute, maybe if you're lucky. And you get to that really safe space where you can truly communicate. Have you gotten to that place with the people who know you best, like with your mother and such? Well, I'm really there with my sister. I'm getting really close with my mother. You know, I've had a lot of trauma in my life. A lot of trauma early on that had effects on me as an adult that I am literally just now in quarantine teasing apart and investigating and getting to the root of so that I can move to that next layer of healing. I'm in the middle of that right now. How are you doing that work? Because quarantine is an isolating environment that allows us to sit with our thoughts and that can go one of many ways. And, you know, structure really helps us identify and to create clarity and structure around those thoughts so as to do the work proactively and not get lost in the process. Good days and bad days is not work. You got to keep going. Right. And so I wonder, you know, how you've sort of applied your time in quarantine to, to this process of self-awareness so as to create structure and know you're doing the work. I am literally and trauma therapy every Thursday from four to six. Trauma therapy. I have been in regular therapy. There's a difference. I did not know. The therapy community (laughs) has come up with some really brilliant, amazing tools 
to help folks with PTSD, to help folks with trauma, you know, and as a person who is, you know, I'm task oriented, you know, like if you give me a task to get to a goal, I'm really good with that. (laughs) I like that. I like school. I like education. And so in this quarantine, it's been really amazing to be quarantined with my husband, to be going through my trauma therapy, to be working on my relationship with him, you know, as a person who, you know, my childhood trauma was sexual abuse at the hands of my stepfather from the age of seven to 12. And then I went right into coming out in 1985, right during the AIDS crisis. So I went from sexual trauma to if you have sex, you're going to (laughs) die for years. So there was no space for me to understand and learn intimacy and connection and love, like real love. What does that look like? I really am learning in this moment right now what that looks like and how to receive it. What I was going to ask was whether or not you see a correlation between not truly understanding what affection, genuine affection feels like and the safety that comes from that and the desire to perform and receive some kind of validation from people you don't know. I mean, I I do make that connection. It's interesting for me, though, because the arts found me, right? I was never in it for the validation. I was in it because it saved my life. I could sing and it saved my life. I could sing. When I opened up my mouth at the fourth grade talent show and sang for the first time in front of people outside of my church, the bullying stopped, like for real. So my voice became my weapon. My voice became my way out. My voice became my savior. I wasn't singing for validation. That comes with it. That comes with it. And show business, that comes with it. There is validation that comes from the, but that wasn't my perspective. My perspective was this thing that I have is going to get me out. It's going to get me out of my circumstance. It taught me to dream beyond my circumstance. It created a space for me and cracked open a world that I never would have known had I not had that gift. So for me, it wasn't about applause and validation. It was about this thing that I had saved my life. So when the first time it didn't save my life was in the music business. My first record contract on A&M Records was the first time that my voice didn't save me. It was the first time that nobody gave a fuck how I sang. Nobody cared. It was only about my gayness. It was only about, you have to fix yourself. And and I was getting that from everywhere anyway. But when I sang in church, people forgot about the gay. When I sang at school, people forgot. For some reason, I was protected. (laughs) You know, when I sang, I got jobs. You know, my first job at 15 years old was working at Kennywood Park in the shows. Six shows a day, six days a week. The best training ground a young performer could ever have. And a beautiful reprieve. And a beautiful reprieve. Beautiful reprieve. I was using my talent and my gift and making money so I could go buy my Jordache jeans. I didn't, my mom didn't have that money for me. You know, like it started there. My talent saved my life. It was more about it being a savior for me than feeding my ego if that makes any sense. It makes absolute sense. And it also makes sense why you struggled so much to come out the other side of that realization that in the music business, you weren't safe. Because what what do I do now? Where do I go now? How do I find security and safety in a place that I can be myself and sing and do what the, the gift that God gave me and not be told I can't show up because I don't fit some archetype. 
And right. it was theatre. It was the stage. It was it's something about you and in the moment, Billy, that I think seems mm-hmm. to cut away from the analysis of others and the ability to, that people have to judge for better or for worse, that once you're actually in a place where they can't deny it, that you are, what I'm trying to say, seem to be at your most effective in the moment. And that is powerful. Right. That is powerful. Yeah. The theater struggle had its own struggle. You know, every space that I got to, yes, theater embraced me in my youth. Theater was the space where I was able to see a different kind of world that I could exist in and live in. But once I became a professional, theater became the same as everything else. I will speak to, you know, my first sort of breakout with Greece. You know, I became the magical fairy Negro clown. There was a space for me. I created a space for me, but it wasn't a space I wanted. Ultimately, I realized, oh, I'm just a clown and I'm pigeonholed in this, in this one area. And I actually have more than that. And I actually have more to say. And when I stood up for myself and demanded to be seen as a human being inside of the theater, the work dried up for a decade. So I didn't work all of my 2000s in the theater in in New York City. I didn't work from the time I finished playing John in in Miss Saigon in 1999 to 2010, the revival, the off-Broadway revival of Angels in America. I did not work in New York. And that was because I made the decision for myself that I was no longer interested in being a clown. And if that was all there was, I was done. And that was challenging because the universe tested me on that. God tested me on that. It was like, are you? Are you really done? I I remember in 2002, I got nervous. They were doing the revival of of, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. I was breaking up with a boyfriend at the time in Los Angeles. I was moving back to New York. Oh, I can be in Little Shop of Horrors. I'll make some money. I get the job. We go out of town. I'm fired from the job before it comes to New York. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, Lord, I hear you. I hear you. If you really want to move to the other place, you have to move to the other space for real and let that other shit go. You have to jump off the ledge and let the other stuff go. Why were you fired from Little Shop of Horrors? My manager will say that I was not fired. So let me just say that. <laughs> like all great managers. <laughs> Perspective is everything. You know, but for me, I had to land on fired because fired has an urgency to it. Fired has an emotional urgency for me to understand that there was a reason why outside of just that they went a different direction it was 25 years after the original or 20 years after the original and they had a puppet that was designed exactly the same way the very first one was designed so by the time they got to the big puppet it was just a shell that did this There's no articulation in the lips. So if you listen to the original version, it's a big, low, booming voice because that's the only thing that matches something doing that with no articulation in the lips. It could could be Levi Stubbs in the movie because the puppet had articulation in the lips. Mm. So he could be high and he could talk fast and he he could do anything. My voice was not matching the puppet. And the puppet was a million dollars. So I had to go. <laughs> but you chose to frame it as a firing because it self-motivated you to remember the lesson you'd begun in the first place. Correct. I can't let myself off the hook. Wow, that's a powerful statement. I went in for this job because I was scared. I went in for this job because here I am two years in, no jobs, no work, no money, nobody's hiring me, nothing. I panicked. And I went for something that I knew was just a placeholder and a space holder. And it was time for me to stop wasting space. It was time for me to be in a position of forward motion, 
and, and moving towards the person that you see before you right now. 2010, taking control of your own destiny. And the show that I came back to New York City with was the show that launched this whole movement inside of me, which was Angels in America. Tony Kushner's Angels in America. I was doing Grease around the corner. Somebody told me about this show. I went to see it. It was the first time that I saw a black gay man reflected back at me who was not a clown, who was not the butt of the joke, who was not vilified, but the moral, spiritual compass grounding of this piece was this black gay man, this black gay nurse. I had never seen anything like it. And I thought, that is who I am. And no one will ever see me like that. If I keep prancing around like a little Richard Automaton on crack around the corner. What's fascinating about it being that production and that moment in time as well, and this is me doing quick math on the timeline, but making a connection to the moment when you came out in the mid 80s at a time mm-hmm. when, as you say, you know, the AIDS AIDS had exploded. And one of the, the key yep. characters in that play, Roy Cohen, very complicated, yes. very divisive human being. You know, there's there's something to be traced back Donald to Donald Trump's mentor. Correct. <laughs> traced back to when you to when, yeah, widely regarded as a as a bad dude. You know, tracing back to when you came out and that character's role in a lot of this misinformation and fighting against equality, even though he was widely regarded to be a reluctant part of the community. And the whole thing is so complicated. Right. So it must've been fascinating for you to right. step into that role, recognizing you'd been on your own journey, but it's sort of the play starts when you kind of started in some respects. It does. And it's interesting because in the break, I ended up going to, it was the best thing that ever happened to me and the most difficult, right? It was like, I lost my voice for three years. And the reason why that happened, and I know the reason why that happened spiritually, was because I did not have the courage to do it on my own. It had to go away so that it wasn't an option. The voice wasn't an option. When it was an option, I went and did Little Shop of Horrors. So it had to not be an option. The universe works in mysterious ways. God works in mysterious ways. So when it was taken away from me completely and I couldn't rely on my weapon, my savior, the only thing I've ever known. Saved your life. I am saying I'm more than my voice. I am declaring to the world I'm more than my voice, but then leaning on my voice. So leave the voice. What do you want to say? I went to graduate school in the screenwriting program at UCLA. I started directing. I started creating. I started finding other ways to be creative. And it was like, oh, right. I don't have to wait for somebody else to validate me. This goes back to the validation part that you spoke about earlier. And when I speak of validation, I mean, give me a job so I can eat. I'm no longer reliant on you in order to keep me alive. I will take control of that decision myself. I will just take control of that decision myself. I may not always, you know, it's like I had to file for bankruptcy. I slept on sofas. I went back and forth to Pittsburgh in my car, in my little blue bug that Rosie O'Donnell gave me. You know, I was, it was not fun or easy or like it sucked. A lot of the time it sucked. But simultaneously, I was growing as an artist in ways that I have no words for, you know? And so then you fast forward to 2010 and Angels in America is coming back. A revival of Angels in America is coming back and can't get an audition. They're seeing people for six months, can't get an audition. Nobody will see me because they still have that idea of me. Something inside of me knew it was going to be all right. I was, we're getting into real stories here. So I was going to Equinox Gym. I had done a residency under George C. Wolf at the Public Theater while he was working on a musical called Carolina Change, which Tony Kushner was the music writer and lyricist for with Janine Tesori. So I was in the room while they were doing that, observing learning how to direct, doing all of that stuff. So Tony knew me. He had his idea of who I was, but, you know, the play was announced. I saw him at a dinner and I said, 
I would come out because I had decided I was retired. I said, I'll come out of semi-retirement to be in the revival of this play. This was October of 2009. We're now February of 2010. I am going to the gym at awkward different times all the time because I don't have a set schedule like that. Every time I was at the gym, I ran into Tony Kushner <laughs> for three weeks in a row. Love every it. time. Love Hi, it. Tony. Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. Not saying a word. I will not beg for anything. I wasn't saying a word. All of a sudden, after like three weeks of seeing each other at the gym simultaneously, he was like, have you, have you gotten your audition for, for Angels yet? I was like, nope. He said, okay, okay, I'll deal with that. The next day I, or whatever, shortly thereafter, I get a telephone call from my manager, agent at the time, manager now, he's become a manager. We've been together for, this will be our 29th year together. Amazing. He calls angry. They want you to come in and audition tomorrow. They want you to get, and, and they want you to do three scenes. And I, and I tried to get it. I said, calm down, relax. There's one role in the canon of everything that has ever existed that looks like me. If I don't already know this material, that's my fault. So you can be rest assured, I know every single fucking word. What scenes do they need? I went in the next day. See, my Aunt Dorothy, my great Aunt Dorothy said, you, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. I'm an artist. I know my work. I'm doing my work. I am focused on the work. Focus on the work. That's what I did in that time. Focus on the work. I studied that play for a decade, over a decade. Plus, this is happening like you know deep down it's supposed to happen. Your manager doesn't quite right. have that, that insight, but you know that every step is leading to this moment. This is how it should happen. Every single step. And I know they don't want to see me. I know that they have their, their you know, whatever. I go into the room. I open up my mouth, you know, and I know it's a courtesy audition. That's the thing that you said earlier. Self-awareness to create greater awareness. Self-awareness to create greater awareness. I am self-aware enough to know that there's a difference between my friends and my colleagues who respect me and the people who have the power to give me the a job. The way those people perceive me are two are opposite ends of the spectrum. So I can't listen to my friends, you know, and even some of the, you know, who are like, oh, please. Yeah, everybody knows you can. It's like, no, they don't. I have to go in and prove myself. So I was off book. I was new every line. You know, I go in an hour later, Tony Kushner gets up from the table, tears streaming down his face, gives me a bear hug and says in my ear, you are the voice I heard when I wrote this play. This is the voice I heard. I said, I know. Thank you. <laughs> And I and I did the play while we were doing the play. And see, this is the part of that quote, because it's hard. to You know, I haven't spoken about this a lot because it's hard to talk about this without people thinking that you're arrogant. Right. And this is where that Miriam Williamson quote comes in, because then there I was doing Angels in America, both parts. And they announced kinky boots. They have been doing table readings with people playing Lola for a year before it's even announced. They announced it. I read it on playbill.com. I said, and that's my Tony. <laughs> that's the role I've been waiting for. <laughs> I had to jump through hoops of fire. That's why it's not arrogant. Listen, when you apply the quote, this has been such an incredible story because the, the moment that you brought that quote into the context of our conversation today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like you knew we were going to end up there again. And the, the journey that you've given us in expedited, really generously shortcut form, considering what you've been through, just to give us an insight into the challenges you've faced, not just personally, Billy, but also to enable others to get there quicker and to benefit, as you right. said before. The fact, right. the fact that you are able now to refer to this quote again and put it in the context is marvelous because it shows yeah. that that is the only thing that ultimately keeps you moving forward is that desire to yeah. let your inner light shine and not apologize or compromise at all. And that is an inspiring quote and an inspiring example of how it should be applied. That has been my life. That's what it is. 
you know, and it's like, and even inside of, and there's been, there's been heartache in every success. You know, there's been a piece of heartache. Why? Just, you know, kinky boots. It's like anybody in the business thought that they just offered that job to me. You know, I was not the one. There were people behind the table that didn't want me. You know, people get selective amnesia about that. But I know who didn't want me. It was not a slam dunk. You know, it was not offered to me. Coming out of that, going into trying to be in film and television and continuing to be dismissed. It's like the journey is for a lot of actors, oh, especially musical theater actors, you like get the gig, you create the role, you win the Tony for the world, and then film and television comes calling. Film and television didn't come calling or knocking. They were just as dismissive as they had always been with the Tony Award. Yeah, he's a That's what he does. That's not real talent. That's not craft. It's like what they do with black people and, and, and black singers. Oh, that's how they all sing. That's not, that's not special. But when, you know, Ariana Grande sings that way, then that's special. When the white girls sing that way, that's special. But black girls singing like that is a dime a dozen. You know, it's the same, it was the same energy that I received with playing a drag queen. It was like, well, yeah. I mean, of course he's going to play a drag queen. Of course he's going to win a Tony for playing a drag queen. But that's not... You know, it was dismissive. I know it was dismissive. It didn't look like it was dismissive on the outside, but it was. And I was getting the same kind of sh- and the same kind of comments from the film and television. Oh, too flamboyant. But you asked for flamboyant. That's what it says in the description. Y'all don't call me in for nothing unless it is flamboyant. And then you tell me I'm too flamboyant. I wanted to kill people. I I literally wanted to kill people. The day before I got the call to audition for Pose, I had a meltdown with my sister and I said, I'm done. I can't. I have so many other things that I love doing. I'm writing, I'm directing, I was directing the play. I can do that. I can't put myself through this anymore. I can't put myself through. Wow. To pull up at that moment, to realize after everything you've been through, to just at that last minute feel like there's a straw here and and it's going to break my back must have just been, what did your sister say? She was like, Billy, it's, it's, it's okay. Just, just hold on. Just hold on. I said, I've been holding on. This is 47 years of holding on. I don't know how to hold on anymore. I don't know how to be told to my face and dismissed when it's a gay character. It's a gay character. And you're telling me I'm too flamboyant and giving it to somebody straight. I can't do this anymore. Like, it's like, I just can't. I I, can't, I have to protect myself now because I actually have now proven myself. I was in Angels in America. What do you mean you still think I can't act? What are you talking about? Why am I still having this fight? Still, I came back to New York City with angels in America. It's not a mistake. Like, what are y'all talking about? Like, literally, I was like, because the fight continues. That's the thing. The fight continues. And the next day, I got a call to audition for Pose. (laughs) The next day, I was like, you have got to be kidding me, Lord universe, whatever you want to call it, you've got to be kidding. Well, there's a sense of humor that flows through this, but only because you've been able to move through these challenges and move through this this life and this gift that you have with these gifts that you have and understand that humor is an important part of it because otherwise, what else you got? <laughs> what else do you have? I mean... What else do you have? Listen. What else do you have? God does whatever you call it, have a sense of humor. Like It's like, wow, okay. Billy, when I set out to have this conversation with you, as soon as we began to talk, I knew that this, there was an opportunity for us here to get an incredible story. And it really has been a remarkable journey and there's so much more to achieve. And, and I suppose my last question to try and get one more thought from you is with so much work to be done, but having paved the way and been a catalyst for change first through the wall, bloodied and bruised, and now in a situation not only to benefit from hard-earned success that you can manifest and control to some degree yourself, but also to continue to inspire. What are your hopes for the immediate future and how can we all do better as people? My hope for the immediate future is that we can use this global reset 
to understand truly and once and for all that we're all the same. We're all human beings. It's simply about honoring each other's humanity, loving each other because of our differences. You know, like, it's like, that's all we have to do. It's not difficult to me. It doesn't feel like it's that difficult. And I feel like, you know, like, I think it's Gandhi that says, be the change. We have to be the change. We have to continue as individuals in the micro to be the change so that that can have the ripple effect in the macro. That's all we can do. That's the only thing we have control over. Because otherwise, I would lose my mind if I continued to think I had control over other people or other things or how other folks behave. We don't. All we have control over is us. Continue to look inward. Continue to be the best human being that you can be, that one can be as an individual. And that will have a ripple effect that is epic. I'm living that right now. I'm, I'm living proof of that right now. I never would have imagined, never, ever, ever would have imagined that it would look like this. That's what, that's what I mean. Like, it, it, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to get butch enough. You know, the vision I had for myself was that it looked like Denzel Washington or Will Smith. That's the only vision I knew. Now it looks like Billy Porter. Like that is incredible to me. That blows my mind. You know, that's the part. I have learned to dream the impossible. That's the last thing I'll leave you with. Remember to dream the impossible. That was really amazing. I loved every second of that. And uh, Me too. I really appreciate your honesty and I appreciate the bravery and the stories and I love and I love your story and I know that it's been yeah, I know you. it's been really tough wow <laughs> the people you're inspiring now so Billy thank you for taking the time to speak thank you thank you and you'll be able to read it in my memoir I'm writing it right now <laughs> <laughs> lots of love Billy Porter I'll see you soon bye-bye Thank you for listening to that. I really appreciate it. And I know Billy will as well, because there's so much you can take away from that. So many sad and tragic, but also uplifting and inspiring stories, sometimes right next to each other, which really is life, I think, for everybody. Billy Porter leaving nothing inside, but also not giving it all away. That's going to come when he finally finishes his book. And that's going to be an incredible read. In the meantime, look out for everything Billy Porter related. You know where to find him. You can't miss him. His energy is unmistakable and his work, nothing short of brilliant. Thanks for listening to this. Subscribe if you want to hear more. We'll be back very soon with another essential conversation on the Zane Lowe interview series. Appreciate it. Take care.